The reading today is taken from the book of Genesis, chapter 22, beginning at the first verse, and can be found on page 22 of the Church Bibles. Abraham tested. Some time later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, Take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, The Lord Will Provide. And to this day it is said, On the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed, because you have obeyed me. 
Then Abraham returned to his servants, and they set off together for Beersheba. And Abraham stayed in Beersheba. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Anne. And thank you, Cathy, for those lovely prayers. So, this is the fifth week of our series exploring some of the key events in the Old Testament books of Genesis and Exodus and looking at their links into the New Testament. And today is the third and final week looking at one of those great biblical characters in the book of Genesis, Abraham. He's described as a friend of God through good times and bad, and his relationship with God is clearly pretty special. At some point in his life, he perceived the truth that God is one, the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. And it's a truth that forms the basis of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, all three great faiths, acknowledging Abraham as their source. And a quarter of Genesis is taken up by the story of Abraham one way or another, from being born and raised in the city of Ur, which is down here, just up from the Persian Gulf, not far from Basra, and down the road from Babylon, uh, in, the, in, the Euphrates, uh, in the Euphrates Valley. And that's in chapter 11 of Genesis, and it takes us all the way through to chapter 25 and his death in Canaan. His father, Terah, had set out from Ur, down here, and in theory was going to go to Canaan, but he stops up here at Haran. Haran is, a, is uh, in eastern Turkey, it's about 600 miles from Ur, and um, for whatever reason, Terah settles there and eventually dies at the ripe old age of 205. But in the midst of all of this, in about 1855 BC, when Abraham was 75, he's called by God to uproot his family, complete the journey, and call to live in the place, leave the place where he was settled and secure, and set out with his wife, Sarah, his family, his belongings, and go to a land that God would only reveal to him when he finally got there. Moving 400 miles or so, down to Shechem, which is here, not far from Bethel and Ai. Remember the battle of Ai in uh, Joshua, the book of Joshua? And uh, he then settles there and begins this lifetime hearing and obeying God's call, believing his promises. He settles uh, in, uh, in Shechem, as I say, which is near Nablus, and then Bethel, not far from the present day, Jerusalem. So his subsequent journeys took him through Syria, through Turkey, through Jordan, where Jan and the team are now, through Israel, Palestine, and Egypt. Unwittingly, I visited parts of what is called Abraham's path, including the ziggurat at Ur, which is this thing here. Very impressive. I did have lots of pictures of it surrounded by American soldiers from 2003, but I thought I'd show it without the, without the military bit. I spent some time in the desert, received hospitality, shared in the company of the locals, and listened to their stories. But along with that, I also saw the brutal reality of hatred and division. When 4,000 years ago, Abraham left the security of his homeland, he passed through lands that now contain nations armed to the teeth, carrying a history of suspicion, fear, and conflict, and amongst other places, the source of those conflicts can indeed be found in these early pages of the Bible. Having initially been promised by God that he would be a father of a great nation, 
when he arrived in Canaan, the Lord appeared to Abraham again, promising that his descendants would be given all the land. But despite these promises, the years pass, and of course they remained childless. By chapter 15, Abraham must surely have become despairing of ever having children of his own. But his, the, the promise that he will indeed have a son and as many offspring as there are stars in the heaven is reaffirmed. And Abraham, we're told, simply believes in the Lord. Long years pass until God appears on the scene again, reaffirming his promises. By this time, Abraham is probably tired of waiting and his response is to fall face down and laugh. He and Sarah are both well into their 90s by now and she is long past childbearing age. Not surprisingly, she couldn't believe that she could possibly have any children. So she was somewhat bitterly amused at the idea when she overheard the suggestion and she laughed it off. But their disbelief is confounded. God is faithful. Miracle of miracles, Sarah becomes pregnant. They both laugh with joy when Isaac is eventually born. Indeed, we're told in chapter 21 that Sarah declares that God has brought her laughter and that everyone who heard about the birth would laugh along with her. How appropriate then is Isaac's name, which means he laughed. And so we come to chapter 22 and this extraordinary story of Abraham and Isaac. God tells Abraham to take Isaac, the long-awaited son whom he loves, and go to Moriah and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that God will tell him about. Once again, Abraham sets out on an unknown journey. This one perhaps even more frightening than the first. The mountains of Moriah are now known as the Jerusalem Hills, 50 miles or so from Beersheba, where Abraham was at the time, a good three or four day journey. They set off with a couple of servants and a donkey loaded with wood for the sacrifice. And when they get to the place that, that God tells Abraham they should do the sacrifice, the servants are told to stay behind with the donkey. The wood is loaded onto Isaac's shoulders and he and Abraham head up the mountain. Now we don't know what's been discussed between the father and the son on the journey itself. But not surprisingly, Isaac finally asks a pretty obvious question. Where's the animal, the lamb, for the burnt offering, for the sacrifice? Abraham simply replies that God himself will provide the lamb. And then arriving at the place for the sacrifice, a place that would become the site of Solomon's temple and is now occupied by the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem, Abraham builds the altar. And we come to the crux of the story. Isaac is bound and laid on top of the wood and Abraham prepares to take up the knife and slay his son. Is there to be a last minute stay of execution? Will Abraham go through with it or decide that he can't? It's a shocking situation. As the Jewish writer Eli Weissel points out, Jewish tradition does not permit death to be used as a means of glorifying God. And no human being has a right to sacrifice another, not even to God. Child sacrifice, for whatever reason, is not a part of God's will in the Jewish tradition. So maybe even knowing that what God is demanding is wrong, nonetheless, Abraham prepares to plunge in the knife. 
But as he lifts it, he's told by an angel not to lay a hand on Isaac. Isaac is saved. Abraham sees a ram caught by its thorns in a thicket and sacrifices that instead. And after telling him that because he has not withheld his son, his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore, and reaffirming that they would take possession of the cities of his enemies, the angel adds, because he has obeyed the Lord, all nations on earth will be blessed. Abraham and Isaac return to the servants and to Beersheba, living peacefully in Canaan, but maintaining contacts with relatives in Haran, securing wives from there rather than from amongst the Canaanites, including later on finding a wife for Isaac, Rebekah, the daughter of Abraham's nephew, in Genesis chapter 24, just before Abraham's death at the ripe old age of 175. As I said earlier, it's an extraordinary story. So what can we learn from it all? The obvious lesson to be learned is that throughout the many decades of his long life, Abraham was prepared to obey God no matter what the uncertainty or the potential consequences. Even though he didn't know how God's promises will be fulfilled, he displays almost unbelievable obedience, trust and faith. And as the angel promised, his obedience literally blessed the whole world. Which is one reason why he's mentioned so often in the New Testament, including the Gospels, in Paul's letters, and in Hebrews chapter 11, which details his great faith and his reasoning that God could, if needed, raise the dead. Indeed, raise Isaac back again. For this story of Isaac is, of course, the precursor to the story of the cross itself. Indeed, some call it the Old Testament's atonement. Abraham's decision to follow and obey God, God's call, set in motion the birth of a nation, Israel, that God would use as his own, and from whom his son, Jesus Christ, would emerge 42 generations later. His reply to Isaac, that God himself will provide the lamb for the sacrifice, rolls down the centuries and is fulfilled in Christ. Isaiah declares 800 years before Christ's birth that one day God would indeed provide a different lamb, a lamb to be sacrificed for the sins of the whole world, for you and for me. Unlike Isaac, Jesus would not be spared by the same sort of heavenly intervention. He goes to the cross obediently and willingly and lays down his life as a sacrifice for the sins of a broken world. But of course, heaven then does intervene, raising him from the grave. Jesus lays down his life only to have it restored, and the entire world is indeed blessed through Abraham's obedience. That's our second lesson. But reading these stories can also perhaps be pretty dispiriting, even frightening. They're tough. God commands. Abraham obeys. Isaac joins him on the journey. 
Abraham prepares the altar, binds his son, a son he has waited decades to have, and lifts the knife. Throughout the whole story, virtually nothing is said. Isn't it all a bit surreal? Indeed, if we're honest, it all rather smacks of fundamentalism. In today's world, Abraham surely would have been suffering from trauma. Isaac would have gone for PTSD and help. And goodness knows what Sarah made of the story when they got home. And Isaac said, Mum, you'll never believe what we've just been up to. There's a complete absence of almost any emotion in this story. And anyway, it's all very well talking about Abraham's faith. But he's Abraham. And we're who we are. And whilst we can maybe stand in awe of what he gets, gets up to, surely none of this can possibly apply to us today in our very different world. And again, if we're honest, all too often throughout the Bible, it just seems that God is always demanding, demanding that we sacrifice ourselves, that we give up stuff. And it scares us because we think in the real world, as opposed to a biblical world, we'll just end up being isolated with nothing but an empty life. But, and it's crucial that we understand this, we are never told to give up things just for the sake of giving them up, to be deprived of the things we value most for no reason. We give them up for the sake of returning and receiving in return the only thing really worth having, a genuinely full life, a life of identity and meaning and purpose. Abraham could easily have decided to stay on in Haran and hold on to what he had. But if he'd done so, he would have lived a very ordinary life. Actually, maybe in earthly terms, quite a successful life. He was clearly a wealthy man, but he would have died in obscurity and history would have been very different. What he gained by giving up his apparent security and comfort and by being prepared to sacrifice a long-awaited son was worth far more in return. I read a story recently of someone who some years ago worked as a volunteer in a hospital. They got to know a little girl called Liz who was suffering from a rare and serious blood disease. Her only chance of recovery appeared to be a blood transfusion from her five-year-old brother who had miraculously survived the same disease and had developed the antibodies needed to combat the, the illness. The doctor explained the situation to her little brother and asked the little boy if he would be willing to give his blood to his sister. Hesitating for only a moment, the little boy took a deep breath and said, yes, I'll do it if it saves her. As the transfusion progressed, he lay in bed next to his sister and smiled, as did those around him, as they saw the colour returning to her cheeks. Then his face grew pale and his smile faded. He looked up at the doctor and asked with a trembling voice, will I start to die right away? Being young, the little boy had misunderstood the doctor. He thought he was going to have to give his sister all of his blood 
and die in order to save her. He misunderstood what was being asked of him and why. And all too often, so do we. Paul calls on the early church in Rome to be living sacrifices and not to conform any longer to the pattern of this world. And on the face of it, it's a pretty demanding call. But being a living sacrifice is not about a sacrifice of death, as in Abraham taking up his knife or as the little boy thought. What Paul is talking about and what Jesus wants of us is ultimately to hand over command and control of our lives in order to receive something much greater in return. In the parable of the sower, Jesus tells us what will choke the word that he puts inside us. And it isn't the devil. He tells us it's the cares of this world which is why he calls us to break the bonds of this world's way of living. To break away from the iPad and the iPod and the iPhone and the selfie. To break the stranglehold of the I in the middle of the word sin and replace it with the letter O in order to live for the Son and not just for ourselves. To refuse to be driven by the destructive desire to strive for earthly security in order to be truly free, that's what releases us to play our part in changing the world. When your family and friends look back on your life, what do you want to be remembered for? All too often, when we ask ourselves how far we should go on this journey of faith, the brutally honest answer is, as far as I'm safe, as far as I'm in control, as far as the risks feel manageable, as far as my sphere of certain competence will take me. Abraham didn't fall for that ploy, and neither should we. But the will of God is scary. It's scary because he asks us to choose between a life that looks successful and a life that is actually significant. Between a life that wins the applause of our peers and a life that actually transforms the lives of others and helps change the world. Jesus is as clear about this as he can be. For those who want to save their lives will lose them. And those who lose their lives for my sake will save them. We serve a God who demands that we make a difference. And unless there's an element of risk in our exploits for God, then there is no need for faith. But all too often, the truth is we'd rather stay in a place where we can still pull things together if God doesn't show up. Where we risk no humiliation. So we stay in Haran. Maybe we even stay in Ur. We retreat. We decide to settle for more modest ambitions. And consequently, we just don't get to be with Jesus on the great adventures in life that he has planned for us, that he has in store for us. And we don't get to live lives full of meaning and purpose 
Jesus tells us to die to ourselves so that we might truly live. When he says come, we simply come. When he says let go, we simply let go. When he says trust me in this, we simply trust. Now that takes courage. But it's the third lesson from Abraham's story that following Christ is the most exciting and rewarding thing we can do with our lives. That's what Jan and the girls are doing in Jordan now. That's what the team were doing on the healing on the streets yesterday that Liz referred to, still going on after all these years. That's what Ollie's doing when he's given his life to working with the young people that God has called him to. The heartbeat of being Jesus' disciple is a preparedness to be obedient. That's the evidence of the nature of God within us, as it was in Jesus himself. The promises of God are of no value to us until, through obedience, we are prepared to step out into the wonderful adventure that he has in store for us. And when we do so, he takes us to places that we would never even have dreamt of. We're going to stand together and sing. We thought about which songs to sing here. At the nine o'clock service, we sang that great old song, Trust and Obey. Some of you will remember it. But we decided to sing, I Surrender All. Because in a way, that's what we need to do. But by surrendering everything that we have, laying it at the foot of the cross, we receive back, as the song tells us, the power of the Holy Spirit of God to move us on. Every week, Christian and I pray for the family, and at the end of those prayers, I always try to remember to say thank you for everything that you've given to us, the house, the family, the resources, the talents, the treasure, and we try to hand it back and say, Lord, use this in any way that you want to for us uh, in the world over the next week, the next month, the next year. So as we stand and sing this, as we talk about surrendering, just reflect on what is it that God might be calling you to lay down in order that you can pick up something fresh and new and live a changed life. Let's stand and sing together.